Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of the INC Preview Show. My name is Carl Birmage, and I am joined by the man on the right-hand side of my screen. He is the Nick Khan to my Stephanie McMahon. It's Joe Neal. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. I've honestly been looking forward to this for the last couple hours, so... Yes, and we want to say a big thank you to everybody who's been tuning in as well. Um, we always love doing these preview shows and we do welcome any sort of constructive feedback that you might have. We're always looking to try and improve the show, add in new features, new segments that people will really engage with. Um, and if you would like to get involved with the show in any way that you can, you can like, share, subscribe. Um, we welcome any sort of comments. And also, if you love us enough that you're willing to um, donate to the cause... We also have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. And if you're interested to hear what Joe has to say, uh, Joe, where's the best place to contact yourself? Uh, I have a Twitter account at, I think it's loco, at LocoJoe7. Uh, and I'm also, uh, I've, I've been tweeting more, trying to be more active on it. And I'm always on the INC Live channel, this channel, always doing the recaps. I read every comment, so you can hit me up there even and I'll answer. Yep. Uh, speaking of your uh, post-fight reactions, you also did one recently, which is just online right now, uh, covering the Finite London card. A uh, bit of a tough slog, this one, wasn't it? Especially given how good the show was back in March. It's like karmic justice or something. I don't know. I don't know what we did to deserve it, though. Like, it, it was... Because uh, the one in March was my first recap video, and so this was like a big... Like, I was really excited for this card. It's like an anniversary for me, you know, to cover another London card, and I, you know, oh well. <laughs> I mean, I think we need a bit of a bit of a palate cleanser after that show, and we're getting it in the form of UFC 277, uh, which will be taking place on Saturday over in Dallas, Texas. I believe the first Dallas um, Dallas pay per view since UFC 247, which was uh, John Jones Dominic race. Remember that guy, John Jones? Yeah, I haven't seen him in a long time, uh, except in like Facebook memes people make of him. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not sure he even exists these days. I, I feel like he was a figment of our imagination. I'd almost, I'd almost say a drug-filled one, but I feel like that's a little uh, too on the nose with John Jones. So we will be getting into more detail when it comes to UFC 277. A uh, lot of discussion online over the quality of this card, which we'll obviously get into obviously uh, in a bit more in depth. Obviously, the way this format works, we'll be covering some of the ESPN prelims. Uh, just a quick overview of those and then breaking down the five fights on the main card before we get there though there has obviously been a lot of news in the world of mixed martial arts not specifically regarding 277 but some of the pay-per-views which are coming up after that and i think we need to start with one of the big ones that happened over the past week joe which is what the hell are the ufc playing at booking nate diaz against hamzat uh I really want to be sarcastic and say that this is genius booking from, you know, the UFC. Like, we let's put this 37-year-old lightweight against the 28-year-old unbeaten middleweight, you know. Uh, but um, they really don't like Nate Diaz anymore. It turns out when you talk smack and you might reveal the truth too much, I think that just adds, like, there it might be some truth to his words um, and his little tirades because they're punishing him hard here. I, I totally agree, and I think, well, I'll have to be the first to admit, everyone, people who follow me online know that I'm not a Hamzat fan, so obviously I'm going to be a little bit biased, but I think even if you put that to one side, one of the big issues I've always had with mixed martial arts is I feel like a lot of the legendary fighters 
uh, get treated with a lot of disrespect. And because, because that's the way that the UFC works, matchmaking is all about trying to, you know, plug the big stars, get as much mileage out of them as you can, and then use their name to build out the new guard. It's like that circle of life, as it were. But because of that process, you get a new generation of fans that don't appreciate the work that people like the Nate Diaz's of the world did. And yeah, maybe I'm not the biggest Nate fan overall, but he did contribute a lot to this sport. He was at one point one of the biggest, most popular stars there. And I feel like a guy like that should be given that sort of fond farewell, that sort of ser- like sort of ceremonial walk into the sunset. And instead, he's been used to prop up the next big flavor of the month, which it doesn't sit well with me, especially when there's such a big mismatch between the two. It's I, I've like we're we're like both pro wrestling fans. We understand the concept of having the old vet give you know uh, you know do a job for a young up and coming guy to make them seem better. That doesn't work in MMA. I personally think yeah because it's you know like. There's real concept like well there always is in, in pro wrestling too but it's it seems like it's a lot worse in MMA I would say um, because you know we know as fans that this is it's you know this isn't scripted uh, it's um, I, I honestly the two matchmaking choices that I really I like in hindsight weirdly enough was I really liked Jim Miller or the when it was Joe Lozon Cowboy Cerrone and then Jim Miller Cowboy Cerrone. And I, I weirdly enough kind of like the Robbie Lawler, Nick Diaz, where we, we treat these legends with respect by giving them big marquee matches, or we treat it like a big deal, you know, as well. Like they made sure Cerrone fought in front of a, ca- a crowd, and it's like almost like a legends division, like a subdivision within the division. And I think that's a good way to kind of lift them up. That's the only thing I think about. But with this, it's just we're we're burying him, you know, we're rough and i think it's a real shame as well uh you sort of brought up there before about some of the things that nate was saying in regards to how the ufc offer fights and dana white saying well we offer everybody free fights a year all that sort of stuff but there's nothing saying that he offers him hamzat in january and then april and then july and just keeps pestering on and on and on again until nate says i'll just shut up now i'll say yes because that's what it feels like to me I, I know Nate said that he asked for, like, like Izzy. I think he asked for Glover, he said, and that he definitely asked for Nganu, uh, which is ridiculous. But um, I don't understand the difficulty of, no, you can't fight Nganu. How about you fight Claudio Puyez or someone, you know, like at lightweight, or do you want to fight at welterweight? Okay, well, let's look at this. Like, do you really not want to cut weight? Let's you know, see what we can do at middleweight, I guess, but... A welterweight um, Dustin Poirier. Oh, I, someone suggested Kevin Holland, and I was like, uh, that's after a the great fight. fight. And I, I saw that on Twitter, and I was like, perfect, that sounds amazing. You know, the two biggest in-ring trash talkers ever. Like, I'm down, you know? Um, On the positive side, though, that's... One of the more unsettling bookmaking decisions when it comes to uh, pay-per-views. On the positive side, though, UFC 280. Dana White is spending a lot of those Abu Dhabi dollars because this card looks amazing right now. I've got a list here of some of the fights which are booked for it. So we've got Charles Oliveira and Islam Markachev. Aljamain Sterling, TJ Dillashaw. 
Piotr Jan, Sean O'Malley. Now that was left field. Gamrot versus Benil Dariush. Uh, Marina Rodriguez, Amanda Lemos. Uh, Bilal Mohamed, Sean Brady. Uh, recently as well, they put the Man on Fear or Caitlin Chukasian fight on there. So that's pretty much a title eliminator for Chev. This card's looking fantastic. That's like, that's amazing. Um, I really like the Dariush fight. Uh, I think the Piotr Jan O'Malley one is really funny, personally. But I also think that uh, it's going to be a rude awakening for O'Malley. I, I'm willing to admit there might be some bias on my end for that. But man, all like that whole card is just insane. The real champion at at lightweight. I don't care if they took his belt. Charles Oliveira def- gets to defend it against Makachev, which is like it's like a bargain bin version of the Tony Habib fight we've always wanted. And I'm all for it, you know. They need to do a BG's promo. <laughs> they need to. How Please. long must I wait? Yes. But it has to be them too. It's the they're the only two that would make it work. I I uh, that fight that fight is is so interesting. I've been thinking about that fight all week. The the lightweight title fight. I'm leaning one. I'm leaning one way, but obviously we'll discuss that when it comes to uh, two seventy nine. Focus, I think we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, our focus though yeah. is on 277, and obviously we're talking a lot about some of the upcoming pay-per-views, and it kind of sort of symbolizes some of the problems that this card has, which is when you think International Fight Week was a few weeks ago, some of the big batches which are coming up, 277 feels a bit like an afterthought. It's like the... It's kind of like, uh, I guess, like a sequel in a way. Like, the you know, like, ah, oh, the sequel's never as good as the original in a sense. Um, or like the come down, you know. Um, I feel like they never booked the, the, the card immediately after International Fight Week to be as strong. Uh, I feel like it's more of a, all right, back to your regularly scheduled programming mm. after having that insane International Fight Week card. Because those cards are always insane. Um, I would, I this one feels more normal. If... Maybe things would have been different if we had a more high-profile main event. Because I actually think the main card, the actual five fights of the pay-per-view portion, you put those in isolation, they're pretty solid fights. You've got ranked matchups, you've got two flyaway fights, when that is one of the real invoke divisions in the UFC. But I think there's a lot of everyday fans who see the main event and sort of tar the rest of the card because of that. It sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, 178. Because that was the card which had like Connor Dustin won, Cowboy versus Eddie, Dominic Cruz was making his comeback. But because it had Mighty Mouse defending his flyweight belt, it only did like 200,000 buys. That's kind of the, the feeling I get with this one. I, I, I think a perfect example of that is, I, if I remember correctly, the numbers for McGregor Cerrone were huge. Hmm. And that main card is awful. <laughs> Um, except for, I, I, I like the, the Carlos Diego Fajeda versus uh, Anthony Pettis fight was good. And that was the only thing I, that interested me on that main card. Yeah. And I remember going, ah, it's a one, two fight card. Well, and one of those fights was shockingly bad. That, that Holly Holm Raquel Pennington fight. And you know, I'm one of the, <sighs> you know, I'm one of the bigger Raquel Pennington fans. Uh, it was like right after her like knee injury in, uh, the like Nunes fight, if I remember correctly. So, like, I can understand, like, being like, oh, I'm afraid of hurting it. And then Holm is just a wet blanket on, against the cage nowadays. So let's try and dissect some of the positives that come from this card. We're going to be focusing on the prelims. You can see those on our screen right now. 
Uh, we did mention that it is somewhat of an afterthought pay-per-view when it comes to the UFC. And that's kind of reflected when it comes to some of the fights on the prelims. Um, a lot of last-minute cancellations as well. Uh, several fighters brought in on short notice. Is there anybody on this card, though, which you think, hey, it is worth tuning in to watch the prelims, and it's specifically for this fight or this fighter? For the prelims, uh, I want to grab it one more time on my end because... I, there was one that caught my eye, and I instantly went to a blank because <laughs> I'm I'm terrible. Uh, there was one. Okay, no, that was the main card. I'm I'm even worse. Um, I I think it was the Matthew Selmasberger fight because for some reason, I think he's has boy status for me. He is just weirdly fun for me. And I don't know if it's because I see him get knocked out really fast, but uh, for some reason that kind of grabs my attention. And the other one, of course, is Drew Dober because he is always going to have a job in the UFC and he is a blast to watch. The big one that stands out for me, um, well, you mentioned Semmelsberger there. The big thing that stands out in terms of his career was he fought um, Nick Diaz's training partner when Nick made his comeback in the Lola fight. He was fighting on like the fight past prelims, and the, like the poor guy had like a four and two record, and there was a lot of people thinking, "Is this guy worthy of being in the UFC?" And Simmelsberger knocks him out in like ten seconds. Yeah, it's yeah, fifteen seconds. Yeah, that's, I, that's right. And just yeah, put him out. Yeah, uh, I think there are some things that stand out for me. Uh, Drakkar Closer, obviously, most people remember him for the war he had with Benil Dariush. Uh, he's taken on Rafa Garcia, which I think could be an interesting fight. Um, in terms of prospects, uh, I would recommend Michael Morales because this guy is one of the he's one of the unbeaten fighters that I don't really feel is getting as much coverage as he maybe should do. Um, I watched him against Trevin Giles. He made his UFC debut, put him out in the first round, and I rate Trevin Giles quite highly, so that was an impressive win, 13 in all. His opponent did fall out, though, so he's going to be taking on a short-notice guy, Adam Fujit, who's 8-2. Um, any opinions on Michael Morales at all? I I have the, the Trevin Giles thing I 100% agree with. I think Trevin Giles doesn't get talked about. I think he's a really solid mid-level guy, if not even like higher ceiling. And he didn't even break a sweat, it felt like, in there. He just kind of cleaned house. Uh, I'm very hot on him. I feel like no one really talks about him. I don't know how hot, like, I don't know where I want to put the ceiling, but I'm at least, like, I'm, I'm watching his fight live, kind of uh, notice for sure. I, I'm not missing his fights ever, probably. And you know I always like my sloppy women's, uh, unranked women's MMA <laughs> bouts. Uh, we've got um, Kim Ji Young taking on Jocelyn Edwards here. And I have to say, Jocelyn Edwards, she's sort of become the, the workhorse of women's MMA. She will fight anyone, anywhere. She's been a bantamweight, she's fighting a flyweight now. I think she fought Ramona Pascal a couple of weeks ago, and that was a featherweight bout. So if there's a chance for her to make a paycheck, she's going to take it. Yeah, that was only in June. <laughs> what? I thought it was in... I, I legitimately thought that was in May. When, uh, but I was like, oh, let me check. Because May doesn't sound as bad, but June... Uh, okay, that's a lot of weight. Fly, from flyweight to feather... Or from featherweight to flyweight, uh... Um, but that's awesome. I, I honestly really like the bouncing around the, the one thing I think to consider is I want to make sure I say her name, right? Uh, Kim, yeah, Kim Jion, 
uh, she her last fight she lost to Priscilla Cachoeira, and I think that's the only thing that makes you go okay. So is this going to be like a really fun sloppy one, or is it going to be like a lower end, like a lower end fight? But at the same time, I it could be awesome. I mean, unranked women's fights are very fun. It's like, it is definitely a guilty pleasure. Yeah, like you either get something which is absolutely amazing or something which is god awful. Yeah, it's it's awesome. There, it's always the coin flip, and it's really fun watching that like first round and a half to go. All right, which is it? Because you can know by the end, like midway through the second round, if it makes it that far. Also, give a shout out as well to a guy who's opening the fight past prelims, uh, Mike Mafeta, uh, better known as Blood Diamond, one of the trading partners of Israel Adesanya, and had arguably one of the worst debuts in UFC history. First time out, he's going to be taking on Orion Koshier, so uh, big match for him as well. Yeah, his debut was rough. He had hype too, which was kind of wild. Like, I, people were interviewing him for his debut, and I remember going, "Oh, well, I gotta watch out for this guy, right?" And then, ugh. but you know, honestly, must-win situations are very interesting. I think for fighters, because I, I would imagine this is a must-win for him. If you're opening the prelims up, and you had the debut like that, I would. I, I feel like that puts the pressure on you, and it's really cool when people, you know, rise up from that pressure. Uh, so all of our hot hot dogging and grandstanding out the way let's talk about our first fight on the main card and as mentioned before i actually think a lot of these fights on the main card are pretty solid matchups and we've got an example of this here uh, fight number one is in the light heavyweight division and it is the number three seed magomed ankalayev he's taken on the number four seed anthony smith so betting odds for this one ankalayev is a minus 500 favorite so he is the biggest favorite on the card which i found very surprising given some of the matchups here. Uh, potential light heavyweight title eliminator, although a lot of that maybe depends on whether or not the UFC choose to run back Lover versus Yeevee. All the indications seem to be that they're leaning towards that way. But this fight and this fight result specifically may change their plans. It definitely does. I know they're really hot on Ankalaev right now. Um the he he's very fun to watch or he can be his last fight wasn't but uh you know his his kutalaba performances were really fun um they're re- they were very impressive like kutalaba isn't like a, a title contender by any means but how fluid and clean he just you know got him out of there was very impressive uh even with the controversy from their first fight so i know they're really high on him and so if he wins in spectacular fashion, they're probably making having him jump Yawn, I, I would imagine, even at this point. Yeah, I think he's already ahead of Yawn. I, I just don't say... I mean, I know that Jan Blachowicz is a bit of a fan favorite, but I think he's going to need two or three wins before he's back in title contention, um, which is a shame given his age, but I think light heavyweight sort of needing a new guard to come through. I think the big issue with Ankalaev, though, is if you watch this guy when he first started off in the UFC, he was a wrecking ball. He's just going through all these unranked fighters so easily. What we've seen recently, and this is no fault of his own, he's doing the right thing here, is he is starting to play things a little bit safer. And as he's fighting the likes of Nikita Krylov, Volkan Uzdemir, Thiago Santos, because he recognizes the threat these guys possess... He's starting to take things a little bit easier, and I think that's deterring the UFC. Because if you look at the guy's winning streak and some of the people he's beaten, 
he should be fighting for the belt next by default. But I think because he's become a bit of a decision machine, plus the fact that he doesn't speak any English, I think the UFC are making him jump through more ho hoops than he maybe needs to. That's actually a fair point, because I, I actually was under the impression that I forgot about the, the Johnny Walker fight with Thiago Santos. I thought, well, the reason they didn't give him a title shot was because Thiago Santos was, has been on this losing streak ever since his, he blew both his knees out in the Jones fight. Um, but no, he beat Johnny Walker. That's right. So, and that kind of got him like some hype back, some, you know, some good standings in the rankings. Yeah, that's a good point. I never actually thought about that. They're probably kind of souring on him because it, it does, see, at least in the last fight I remember, and I think so in the Ozdemir fight, he fought more to not lose instead of to win, which the UFC hates. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why you could maybe say on the opposite side of things, you've got Anthony Smith here, who uh, at the moment he's on a free fight winning streak. Although there are maybe some questions about how good some of these fighters are. Devin Clark, Jimmy Crude, Ryan Spann, solid fighters, but maybe not sort of top five, top 10 ready. If Ankalaev is sort of being held back by the UFC because he's maybe a decision machine, because he's maybe not as media-centric. Is the opposite happening with Anthony Smith, where he's getting himself more opportunities because he's playing that sort of corporate side of the game? He knows what buttons to press to make the UFC go, he deserves the chance. I think so. I, I think that definitely plays a factor. Comp company men go far in the UFC. Um, it, it's very much, like, like we mentioned earlier, you know, Nate Diaz isn't a company guy. He's under some maybe potential punishment matchmaking. Anthony Smith is a company guy. Daniel Cormier is the king of being a company guy. And they had some good pushes and favorable matchmaking in terms of, well, yeah, well, it's time for you to get a title shot. Sure, jump these guys. Um, at times, uh, I, I think it definitely helps. And I think there's definitely a precedent for it helping them out. Let's dissect this fight on the technicality side of things. So we'll start with Ankalaev. So very adapt in both stances. He does seem to favor the southpaw a bit more than others. Um, I would recommend looking out for his kicks. He is a very good kicker, especially for this weight class. Um, strong takedown defense in the clinch, which, bearing in mind some of Anthony Smith's, Smith's offense, usually comes through the clinch, elbows and knees. That's maybe a, a hole that Smith's not going to be able to exploit. Um, he uses a lot of forward pressure as well. Like, you saw that, especially when he fought Martin Prakniau, where he's just pressing forward and ended up getting them out there in, like, the first round. Um, on paper, this guy, we say this with a lot of Dagestani fighters, he seems like the complete package. Have we got another of these sort of Eastern European killers at light heavyweight? Uh, I think there's the, I think the potential is there, but I think him slowing down does leave questions. When, when, when you, in my opinion, whenever you fight to not lose, but more just to, or yeah, when you fight not to lose and not fighting to win, I feel like you're holding yourself back a little bit from really showing it. And that, and it leaves questions there. Uh, I, I feel like there's more questions at the end of a, a technical calculated and rather boring decision win than a going out there and taking care of business. I, I think there's, more questions at the end of that decision win than perhaps a something a little bit more action packed because we see more. Um, and but I, I'm not. I think he's really good though. I, I that being said, I feel like I'm not trying to rag on him. I, I think he's really good, and I I also think he's potentially top four. 
what are the big things that stand out for you technically when it comes to Ankoliev? I like him from the southpaw with his straight left on the counter a lot. Uh, he kind of does the, the crow cop thing a little bit where he'll use his rear hand straight from both stances and he'll mask it with a rear leg body kick or a rear leg head kick. And that just because it's the same shoulder movement for each one. So each one helps set up the other. Um, so I really like that. I always love it when guys have that kind of uh, that double edge or triple edge, you know, kind of attack. But his movement is actually really good. And his he's very, very sound defensively on the feet. Anthony Smith has a lot of power on the feet. And he's a very good striker in his own right. But I have to go from a defensive standpoint. Uncle is very good. Um, good thing you brought up Anthony Smith as well. I saw one of the MMA journalists. I, I have to stress, I don't know which one off the top of my head. And they described Anthony Smith as vanilla dangerous. And I think what they <laughs> interpreted by that was that Anthony Smith isn't really a specialist in one key area, but he just seems like good everywhere else. Like his striking is good. His wrestling is good. His jujitsu is good. Um, and I think... It's a great all-around threat. I think there's a reason Anthony Smith gets booked against so many young, promising light heavyweights because he's that great all-round test. If you are a grappling expert, he's going to test your takedown defense or your submission skills if you take him down. If you're a good striking threat, he's going to stand and trade with you. So I, I get why the UFC is so high on Anthony Smith. What would you say are Anthony Smith's best strengths? I think the well-roundedness is fantastic, like is really good, and he has a very like on the feet. His attack is very is you know, uh, it's varied. I guess that's be the or you know the best word for it. Uh, as with like the Jimmy Crude fight, you know he was he, we've seen his good boxing before. We've seen his elbows. We've seen his high kicks. Even uh, he knocked out um, Hector Lombard. I almost I almost said Hector Gallard, but Hector Lombard with a with a high kick uh, and middleweight. And so we know he can kick high. We know his boxing's good uh, and his Muay Thai's good. But, like, his low kicks when in pressuring and checking low kicks were very good. And, again, it's like you said, you know, he's going to test every area of the fight. And it's like, oh, are you good here? Well, I'm going to take you here. And we're going to see how you are here. And I, I really like that style. Like, Devin Clark has had issues with submissions in the past. And he triangle choked him. And then Ryan Spann, he's been finished a couple times, but he does hit very hard. And he evaded the power and was able to neutralize it and get the Renegade choke. I loved his job against Jimmy Crute. Oh, his boxing is is very underrated. I, I, I know people who say they don't they're not convinced Anthony Smith is very good, but he he is very good. I think I think he's a lot better than most people give him credit for. I think the Glover to share a loss really hurt a lot of people's opinion of him. And I don't think that's fair because Glover went on to win the title. Not that, no, not that long after. And a lot of people forget as well. He was piecing Glover apart in the first round of that fight. Yeah. He was dominating him. Um, just lighting him up on the feet. I think, I think technically Anthony Smith can maybe get this fight done, but the issue as you sort of touched on before is it's not so much Ankaliyev's offense, it's his defense. He is very hard to connect with. I mean, if you can connect with him, as Thiago Santos showed, you can maybe have some success because Santos came close to finishing him in, I think, the second round or the third round. 
Well, he clipped him with the left hook, didn't he? Clipped him mm-hmm. with a left hook right at the end of the round, sort of like 10 seconds left. So, obviously, Santos didn't have the time to maybe finish the fight off. Had it lasted, let's say, another 20, 30 seconds longer, he maybe would have done so. I do have some concerns when it comes to Anthony Smith's defense, though. Uh, Smith is historically very poor at checking kicks. So I can see Ankalaev really laying into them. And I get the impression sometimes Anthony Smith has a habit of, of wilting. When the fight is up against him and he is facing adversity, he maybe does cower a little bit, sort of crumble and allow himself to get dominated. We saw that when he fought Rakic. We saw that when he fought John Jones. And he's got to have a much stronger resolve if he wants to beat Ankalaev. If not, Ankalaev could get this done within the distance. Yeah. Uh, Ankalaev is very capable of breaking people um, very quickly, uh, especially with his well-rounded game. And Anthony Smith, I always kind of picture him as like the glass cannon uh, at 205 because he he only has two decisions on his record. Of all 36 wins, two decisions. He's a finishing machine. But of his 16 losses, he's only lost three decisions. And that kind of epitome is like, feels like the glass cannon. He he can be finished uh, in any way. But the thing is, you know, he can also finish you in any way. Uh, and I think that makes this fight very exciting, honestly. He's, this fight I'm really looking forward to. I think it's probably one of the best fights on the main card itself. Which way are you leaning? Uh, my heart says Anthony Smith. My mind says Uncle Live. And I think if Uncle Live wins, I think he wins like he's, I think he just, uses his defense and kind of shuts down Anthony Smith. So almost, almost similar to last night's uh, Chris Curtis, um, Jack Hermanson fight. It's kind of how my brain pictures it. I'm in the same boat as you. I can say, I think Uncle Ayev's going to win this one and I'm going to say it's by a unanimous decision. Um, and I think that result is what confirms the UFC's decision to do Glover versus Yubi again. If Ankalaya mm. finishes this in the first round and it's a spectacular highlight real KO, they maybe change their mind. But if Ankalaev doesn't do that and it does go the distance, they're booking that fight again. Yep, and they're gonna give Ankalaev Yawn, I, I I think. That's my prediction. Is they're gonna do Ankalaev Yawn for a number one contenders to fight the winner of Yuri and Glover. Unless Glover wins and we do a third one, which I'm not opposed to. Yeah, it'd be like like Fight Night Warsaw or somewhere like that. Yeah, yeah. First one, the seven wins at this point. I'm okay with it. Yep. Uh, so fight number two, we are going into the flyweight division. Alexander Pantoja is taking on Alex Perez. So it's the number three C taking on the number five. Our betting odds for this one based on our friends at Bovada. Uh, Pantoja is a minus 155 favorite. Alex Perez plus 130. And I think this is a great place to talk about a bit of a tangent, Joe. How good has the flyweight division been recently? It's so good. There are some on legitimately some of the best fights I've seen in like the last like three, four years. I would say of like the top ten, if I had to narrow it down. A majority would probably be in flyweight. Flyweight and bantamweight, but flyweight as well. Like Brandon Royville. Seems like every time he fights, he puts on a great fight. Uh I I like Alex Alexander Pantoja as well. Kaikara France, who we talk we're gonna talk about later, and uh, his opponent, uh Brandon Moreno, and then Last week we had um, Matt Schnell take on, and I, I forget the I forget his name already. Um, Sumajaji. Sumajar. Yes, 
I was like, it was Sue something, and I I don't want to off- offend uh, by like just saying part of his name. Uh, but that fight's one of the best ever. It, that's a fight of the year contender this year, um, in a year full of amazing fights. What do you think it is that's caused the like? Like the upturn for flyweight, because I mean, flyweight has always been a good weight class, but I think it took a long time for fans to recognize how good it was. I mean, 2018, they were close to shutting down the whole thing. Yet here comes this sort of new breed of fighters, as you mentioned before, like the Roy Vals, the Chanel's, etc. We've seen Moreno, Figueiredo, obviously trading the belt between one another. Is this just a case of people are paying more attention? Or has there been a change in attitude? Are these flyweights thinking we need to up our game because we came so close to getting cut before? I think they've always put on really good performances. Uh, and part of me wants to say there's something in the water right now at flyweight that's just making them amp it up even more. But I think a, a realistic way to look at it would be like weeks ago or last month, we talked about how good women's flyweight's just gotten ever, ever since its inception. And I feel like that, like, I think the whole division as a whole post Mighty Mouse, which I hate saying because I love Mighty Mouse, um, has just improved leaps and bounds. Uh, I feel like everyone's, I think it's, I think almost every fighter there has a complete game in some way. On some level, they're well-rounded. Whereas I don't think there's any other division where I feel comfortable saying that. And we're talking about two guys who maybe sort of become forgotten men in the weight class, largely not through their own fault. They've both been affected by injuries. Alexander Pantoja and uh, Alex Perez here. We'll start off with Pantoja. Uh, he's coming into the fight having beaten Brandon Royval on the Cannoneer vs. Gaslam card. Notable wins on his record, they include, as mentioned, Royval, Manel Karp, Match Snell, Wilson Hayes. Two wins over Brandon Moreno as well. So here we have Brandon Moreno fighting for a UFC interim title, former champion, yet a guy underneath him on the card holds two wins, one on the content, not the content series, one on the Ultimate Fighter, and one in the UFC itself. He tapped him out on the Ultimate Fighter with a rear naked choke. It's a fantastic fight as well. It's, it's actually very good. Uh, I think uh, Brandon Moreno was the, the lowest ranked seed and Pantoja was the highest ranked seed, if I remember correctly. And uh, they, they went to war. And th- their second fight's good too. Um, Pantosha's really good. I, again, these are forgotten names in the division because, you know, guys like Kaikara Fronts, in my opinion, has kind of jumped Pantosha. I felt like Pantosha probably could have gotten the nod in the co-main event spot, but uh, they went to a Kaikara Fronts, which makes sense. You know, he's very hot right now. Um, he, he just does everything. Pantosha has very heavy hands, a very, very good grappling game, and honestly, his boxing and his striking has improved a lot. He's... Kind of a complete package, it feels like. And his low kicks, in my opinion, some of the best in the division. Very good. They, they kind of remind me of Ricardo Arona in a weird way from Pride. Uh, in, or like he also fought in rings as well. Uh, I think he floored, I think it was Fedor. I think he floored with a low kick in like 2002. Um, but that's kind of how it reminds me because he just, he just, kind of winds up it feels like and just blast legs like he he has a complete disdain for his opponent's calves and it's awesome do you think he maybe should have got the flyweight title shot because i know when moreno took the belt um he beat figueredo dominated him in that uh, second fight there was a lot of people that thought 
is it really wise for us to do the figurine or trilogy fight again? A lot of people believe I, it should have been Pantoja. I, I, I'm 100% with you on that. I, I, I We'll get into it more later, but I, I was very upset with the booking decision to do a third fight. I felt like that was a lot of Figueredo complaining that kind of got him in that spot, uh, sadly. Um, I, I'm not trying to talk you know too bad about him or say anything bad at all about him. Um, and I know the argument was that Figueredo had beat Pantoja, and that's why they're doing that. I, I heard that, and I, I, I didn't like that still, um, because... MMA math doesn't work. So, like, the idea that, well, Figueredo uh, lost to Moreno, but he did beat Pantoja, so there's no point in even having the Pantoja-Moreno fight. Well, no, Pantoja has two wins on Moreno. I feel like this is an interesting fight. Why not do it? And it's the two, in my mind, still the two best guys in the division. Yeah, I always love those MMA math equations, and they always seem to go through uh, a Sun Tzu. Like, because yeah, yeah, he... He's fought everybody. <laughs> but because of that, they can all make these arguments that uh, like Mighty Mouse could beat Fedor because X beat X, X beat X. <laughs> I, I, I would have loved to find the math equation for that. It's, it's so fun. Um, completely BS, but it's a lot of fun at least to look at that stuff. We'll, um, we'll change tact and we'll talk about Alex Perez here. Now, Alex Perez is a bit of an interesting situation as well because... We talk about Pantoja becoming a bit of an odd man out in the flyweight division. You could say the same thing about Alex Perez, and again, through no fault of his own, because the last time he fought was a UFC pay-per-view main event. He fought Davidson Figueredo, which was him stepping in as a short-notice replacement. Cody Garbrandt was supposed to take that fight originally. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, is Alex Perez the most forgotten pay-per-view main event headliner of recent years? Yeah, he has to be, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's crazy to think he has to be. Because his fight wasn't even two minutes. Not by his fault, but, you know. Yeah, he's got to be the most forgotten ever. And he's really good. Like, he's very impressive to me. When he fought uh, Formiga, uh, I remember just seeing those low kicks just get him blast those low kicks. It, it hurt me watching uh, I remember exactly what I was doing. I was smoking a cigarette, watching it on my phone, and I just went, I, 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 I no, no more of that. <laughs> and poor Formiga, like, just, you know, couldn't walk, I think, for, like, I think he couldn't walk for, like, the next week, I think he was saying. In the interviews, it, it was just rough. And then in the Figueredo fight, he actually didn't look bad at all up until the submission loss. Like, he, he was going to get the takedown, and there might have been a fence grab, but he looked really good and then got tapped out. And then because of injuries, he hasn't fought since. So, and no one remembers him. It's a, it's a very much a, what have you done for me lately sport, sadly. And if you actually look at a lot of the, I mean, the guy was what, I think it was something like 11 wins in the past 12 and his only loss was Benavidez. So he's, yeah. he's he had the momentum. He had some quality wins down there, like the Formiga one, which you mentioned, Jordan Espinosa, Shorty Torres, which is a guy who nobody speaks about, was, but was riding a real hype train before their fight. I'm with you. I think he's a very underrated fighter. What do you think are Perez's biggest strengths? I think he's really quick. And his, like, I'm, I mostly see him wrestle and, like, grapple a lot because, you know, he had, like, a, a string of just anaconda chokes, and I love that choke, so that was awesome for me. But 
like his, his striking has really come to since the Benavides fight, where he was just kind of beat up. Um, but that was also 2018 Joseph Benavides, who is who is a much different animal uh, in his like latest years before he retired. And I, he 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 was really quick in his movement. Like he he almost kind of feels like a fencer at times. It feels like very much on the line to me. Um, but he was darting in and out of range of Formiga and never let Formiga get a hold of him and just kept blasting that leg. And and his top pressure also is very good. I remember him just, you know, if I remember correctly, he was able just to kind of dominate Espinoza from top position. Once he got the takedown, it was over, you know, in a sense. He's also very big for the weight class. How tall is he? <laughs> <laughs> He's 5'6". He's my height. Oh, man, that's not good. <laughs> oh <laughs> that that's terrifying as a flyweight for someone to be my height because yeah. i'm a giant of course uh five six i think this is a really fascinating fight to me like obviously as mentioned before i think that pantoja has made a lot of strides when it comes to his striking um but i can see this fight sort of playing out as a grappling match because i remember a lot of people going into the royval fight thinking that it was going to be two grapplers and they were going to have a kickboxing match. But they were both willing to sort of embrace the grappling side of the game. Royval, of course, doing his... being Brandon Royval, to put it uh, bluntly. Uh, Pantoja was able to uh, dive into the, the lion's den, came out on top, second round submission. I can see a very similar fight playing out. I think it's going to be a wrestling match. And I think a lot of it, could, the... a lot of it could come down, in my opinion, to... And we bring this up a lot when it comes to Pantoja. His conditioning. He starts fights very strong, but you get him into the later stages of the second or the third round, he slows down big time. And we saw that when he fought Dustin Ortiz. We saw that when he fought Askar Askarov. And as long as Alex Perez isn't showing any ring roast, I think there's an avenue for Perez to win this fight. What makes that even crazier, too, is uh, it's been not not quite two years, but almost two years for Alex Perez. Usually when you see a layoff getting a, around that time period, they come back with like a worsened cardio. And and I, I wouldn't have questioned Perez's cardio because I've, I've never seen – at the top of my head, I don't think I've ever seen him have cardio issues like Pantoja at least. But now it's – now you got to question both tanks. It's kind of an interesting matchup on paper. And if, if the grappling is like that because – I'm all in though because uh, the Pantoja Brandon Royville fight felt like Don Fry and Takayama on in the grappling match. It was so awesome. They they were just throwing legs up and passing guards left and right, and Brandon Royville just flinging everything but the kitchen sink in the grappling department. It was so awesome. I think Pantoja is going to pause a more potent submission threat than Alex Perez, but. Again, if his cardio holds up, I can see Perez being able to hold him down. So I'm going to be leaning towards Alex Perez winning this one by unanimous decision. And I know that's a big of a bit of a big call, but sometimes you go where you go. It all depends on how how much ring rust he has. But he's been prepped for fights with Machnell and other guys for like a good like six or seven month period. So he's fight ready. He's raring to go. I, that's a big upset, and I'm going to agree with you on that. Uh, I I personally think uh, if we forget rankings and we just look at the, the three best, I think the three best flyweights on the planet are Moreno, 
Figueredo, and then Pantoja. And maybe Pantoja even second, I think. Because I, I, you know, spoilers, I scored Moreno winning the third fight. But I think I think Perez can do it. Something tells me he's going to, I'm going to say he survives the first two rounds and then he gets a late stoppage. That's a big call. That is a big call. I, I something, I, I, re, I kept talking about the Formiga fight because I've watched that fight four times researching it because I, it was just so impressive to me. And something just tells me he's going to do it. I, I have this feeling. I, I think I don't think he's the better striker, but I think he's just almost tougher. As long as he doesn't get his neck caught, I think he's fine. If he get, but he can get his neck caught for sure. I think that's and, definitely a possibility. And I always say sometimes you get these predictions. I know when it comes to prediction shows like this, you have to go with logic. You have to go with what your head says. But sometimes you just get this like good feeling that the fight's going to play out. I've had this before a number of times, and this is one of those situations. Like, I remember I had a lot of people raise eyebrows when I said Jan Blachowicz was going to beat Dominic Reyes second-round KO. That's crazy. <laughs> I I was so wrong on that one. Uh, and Because I, I looked at it, you know, sometimes the gut feeling, something just is off to you. Even if you can't put it into words, you're subconsciously probably, like, seeing something. And it's tipping you off in one direction. And that's kind of how I feel. There's something I missed and I can't articulate it. But I think Alex Perez wins with a third in a third round. Fight number three. And we're going from the smallest weight class to the heaviest. <laughs> the heavyweight division here. It's Derek Lewis taking on Sergei Pavlovich. Uh, Derek Lewis for this one, a minus 125 favorite. You can get Pavlovich at even money odds. And I've just got one line in terms of my uh, sort of overview notes here. Derek Lewis fighting in Texas. Oh, dear. Oh, I... That's right. It's in Dallas. Well. <laughs> that's it. That's rough for him. I feel bad for him now. That's bad luck. Do you think this is maybe a bad omen for how the fight may play out? Kind of. Uh, now, I, I actually had a figure... I, I kind of figured... Pavlovich is good, but for some reason it's really hard. It's always hard to bet against a heavyweight that hits that hard. Everyone hits hard at heavyweight, but he has the record for the most knockouts. So he clearly knows what he's doing when it comes to knocking someone out. It's become an art form for him. It's it's always hard for me to bet against Derek Lewis. But I'm I'm not going to be superstitious. I'm going to I'm going to keep up uh my initial thoughts on this and it's an interesting situation for where Derek Lewis stands in terms of the heavyweight division because like before the stuff with Francis Ngannou started playing out in public Derek Lewis was supposed to be fighting him in Houston for the heavyweight title so he was in prime title contention obviously Cyril Garn dominates that fight he's beating Tai Tuivasa and then Tai mounts a fantastic comeback to get that win uh, Derek Lewis never lost three fights in a row so this is a this could be new territory for him. Is he a bit of a heavyweight gatekeeper now? Uh, I don't. I don't know if I would say he's a gatekeeper at this point. He he's he's one and two in his last three because he did beat Dawkins in December, and then Tui Vasa. And but the Tui Vasa one for me felt like his younger Maui clone just knocked him out to me. 
they both have the similar bodies, types, and styles. Uh, one just is a better kicker. Um, I think he could. I he he is getting he is aging, so this will be the fight to determine it. But I'm not gonna say he is yet. I think he still has some. I think he still has some gas in the tank. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of the uh, Chris Dawkins fight there. I completely passed me mind there. So I got dead I, wrong. I, I, I got, got dead wrong. I got worried that the Dawkins fight's what got him into the the gone fight, and I was like, "Well, hold on, I got to look at this." There's no way I would remember that. <laughs> well, speaking of Chris Dawkins, what we're seeing with the heavyweight division, and a lot of this stems from obviously they have more fight nights these days, so they have. And there seems to be this fascination with always having heavyweight main events on the fight nights. We've got a strange situation here where I feel like a lot of heavyweight prospects, in inverted commas, they get these big opportunities a lot more frequently. And for every sort of Cyril Garn, Tom Aspinall, Taito Avasa, Curtis Blades that ends up breaking through that gate and becoming a sort of established top five contender, there are multiple guys like the Dorcas's. Shamil Abdurakimov, Augusto Sakai, who end up faltering. And they were like, flavor them on for a few weeks and then just get thrown out by the wayside. Where does Sergei Pavlovich start? Because he's sort of like the next of this breed. Is he going to pass through and become something? Or is it just another, well, we tried. I, I think it's too, I, I, I'm not, and I don't want to put Dawkins into this because it's too early to tell for him. Because that's two two losses in a row. Usually, when these flavor of the month show up, they they show up and they get beat. The hype is dead, and then you know it, there here comes the losing streak. But his debut was against Overeem, which he lost. He got finished at the end of the first round, and then he went on the streak that he's on currently now. So I almost feel like he's one of the guys that has a you know. Perhaps a, a more unique path in the rankings instead, because it it does definitely feel like all these flavor of the month guys show up, and some pass with flying colors like Tom Aspinall, Curtis Blades did, uh, and Ganu definitely did. Um, but then there, you know, the the Shamil one. Uh, there was I feel like Maurice Green people talked about for a little bit too, weirdly enough. And uh, there's the there's the other Sergey at heavyweight as well. Spivak. Yes. Yeah. And he, he was like pot for everybody. Uh, but I also wonder if that was because people were getting them mixed up. I have maybe more confident about Pavlovich than some of the others. Uh, 15-1 and one record, three-fight winning streak, uh, which include uh, Shamil Abdurakimov, which we just mentioned, Maurice Green, and Marcelo Golm, who just got a win on the uh, Bellator card recently. Big comeback win for him. Uh, this is where the interesting stat comes comes in though of these 15 wins three are by decision 12 by first round ko so you maybe have some question marks about the quality of this competition i know he fought at uh, fight night global he was actually on the undercard of the infamous fedor versus maldonado fight uh, which i recommend oh. anybody checks out because the commentary for that show is one of the funniest things that you can ever watch so i recommend anyone checks that out but uh, Sergei Pavlovich is on that card. I think he's fighting a French uh, wrestler and finishes him in the first round. So on paper, there's everything here to say maybe he's got something here for, for Puwadurik. He, he could. 
But here's something else I've noticed looking o- if you look over his record. Uh, of his three decisions, uh, are, of, are, his, are not counting his three decisions, all of his wins are in the first round. So is his cardio just depleted? Because I, I haven't seen his decision wins. I've only seen his, sadly, I've only seen his UFC fights. And he does knock guys out senseless. And at heavyweight, everyone hits hard. Um, anyone can knock anyone out at heavyweight. It's just kind of how it goes. But his boxing isn't bad. It's a little, it's it's like, it's a really good heavyweight boxing, for sure, at least. Which, it, it's at least better than Derek, or Derek Lewis's. So Derek could be in trouble here. But I almost put more stock into Derek Lewis's cardio, weirdly enough, than Pavlovich. <laughs> the only time you sounds... will ever hear someone say that. I, I, I almost regret it even saying it, but I still feel that way. Um, I, I mean, his cardio is not great, but he did knock out Volkov in the third round somehow. So he definitely carries his power, at least, throughout the rounds. It doesn't just vanish, like some people with bad tanks. What I've seen from Pavlovich watching some of his fights, and you mentioned before what's he like when he goes past the first round. Cardio isn't great. He de- there is a definite slowdown between the first round and the third. Um, and you could argue he was he banked on the work he did in the first two rounds to get by in the third. I put it that way. Um, oh. I agree with you, though. I do think his boxing for a heavyweight is very good. If you notice, he follows the same sort of technique to get a lot of his finishes. He'll throw like a big overhand right. A lot of his offense comes from the right. And as people are ducking to try and avoid it, he follows through with the left uppercut. And you saw it, it was the same way he finished Marcelo Gorm, same way he finished Maurice Green. Um, so that's sort of like one of these big weapons that Derek's going to have to look out for. Also an interesting stat is he's a training partner of Volkov. So Volkov will clue him up on a lot of the quirks that Derek Lewis has. Don't throw knees whenever he's loading up a right hand. <laughs> As you mentioned before on your veteran I had review. To. I had to. I had to bring that up. Uh, you know, also make sure it's not that hot, you know. Uh, We're devoting but, um, a lot of time, obviously, to uh, Pavlovich, because I think he's he's maybe not as familiar with a lot of the uh, fans who watch this show as maybe someone like Derek Lewis is. So I think we have to focus on him, sort of G people up on why this is important. Let's focus on Derek Lewis, though. Like, we all know the big stories that come with Derek Lewis. Are there any more wrinkles we've seen from Derek uh, since like over these past two or three years? Or is this just the same guy that we fell in love with when he was uh, talking about his hot balls? <laughs> I'm glad you said it. I, I was holding back <laughs> that one up. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's funny. I, I felt like his most recent run was actually pretty good. He was being a little smarter. Because, like, back whenever he was getting famous... You know, uh, I think right before the, you know, Daniel Cormier fight, he was just swinging. Or as he says, swinging and banging. He was just throwing everything at guys. And now, like, I I think the Curtis Blades one is a great mid-fight adjustment. You know, Curtis Blades was throwing a jab, then a low kick, and then, or he would look for, like, look for a level change. And that level change we knew was, he knew was coming. He was waiting. And then he clobbered him with one of the, most violent knockouts I've ever seen. Uh, and I thought that was actually a pretty good mid-fight adjustment for him. 
Um, I thought in the Tui Vasa fight, uh, I think what betrayed him was he wanted just to kind of brawl. But whenever he would catch him, he would catch him pretty well. You know, he would set up his shots pretty well with like pretty interesting shoulder feints. And of course, he is just in so strong. If this fight somehow goes to the mat and Pavlovich gets on top, I, I fully expect Derek Lewis, if he has energy, to do his classic two-hand throw them off of him no matter what the position is. He's, he's been doing that more and more, I feel like, lately. There's like this compilation video of Derek Lewis's um, like get-ups. And it's like, like the guy on top of him, say like a Roy Nelson, for example, they'll be dominating, bit of ground and pound there, and Derek Lewis will be, just be like, I want to get up now and just, just rive them off. It, it's insane. I, I've watched it and I've seen other like grappling guys talk about it and they go, well, it's actually pretty hard to do that. Like you have to have some level of what you're doing because he knows where to push him and stuff. But it's also really hard because you have to be just insanely strong. So I think it is kind of fun that it is a mix of he knows what he's doing and he's just the Hulk, you know. Organized chaos. That's the best way to describe <sighs> Derek Lewis. And one of the things that sort of stand out for me as well when it comes to Derek is I actually think Derek is maybe a bit more technical than people make him out to be. Because, like, yes, he does focus on, like, the wild, brawling side of the game, and that's where a lot of his offense comes from. But a 260-pound man who throws a jumping switch kick, you've got to have a bit of agility about you. And then, of course, as you mentioned before, there was the Kurt Splits knockout where... He knew the shot was coming and timed that uppercut to perfection. So I, I like to make this comparison online. Have you ever watched a show called Robot Wars? Yes, I have. Yeah. Well, there was a machine on there called Deator. And it was like this fur-covered robot, which is always like a bit of a joke. Everyone thought, oh, God, this thing, how can it win? And it was actually one of the most powerful machines on the show. And that's Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis is Deator. He... Uh, I, mean, I mentioned it earlier when we when we introduced it is you have to kind of, you know, think about it like everyone at heavyweight hits hard. That's just kind of the nature of the game. Uh, even old Jared Rolschel from back in the day. Um, but he has the record for most knockouts. So he clearly understands how to knock people out. I, I feel like I could have said I think you summed it up better than I, I did there. He clearly knows how to knock you out because he has some of the best timings at heavyweight in general. Like he's the one that timed the, the knees coming in against Volkov. Uh, he's the one that timed the uppercut. And uh, he's the one that timed the, uh, I believe it was the, the, the short right hand as Dawkins was stepping in or no, Dawkins was circling. That's how he caught him. His timing's very good, which that clearly means he knows what he's doing on some, on a good level. So this makes this fight so much more intriguing to us because we've got we've got the proven test in Derek Lewis here. We know how he's going to win versus Sergei Pavlovich, who is still a bit of an unknown quantity against guys of this level. Because as good as this winning streak is, when your best wins Shamil Abdurakimov, who was a questionable top 10 fighter at best, is he going to be able to handle the jump of someone like Derek Lewis? It's a fascinating fight. It's it's really interesting. It's 
I, I, I do lean towards the Derek Lewis idea, though. I think I, I part of me wants to jump on this new quest, the new hot question mark. But after kind of talking it out with you, I, I think that Derek Lewis just feels like more of a sure shot. But regardless, it is going with with both of their finish rates and knockout rates. It does sound pretty good, but I will not guarantee anything because Derek Lewis did fight in Ghana once. No, he didn't. That fight never happened. Oh, oh I if uh, if I uh, if I go to the bad place in the afterlife, I know that's all that's going to be there is that fight in V on VHS. That's all I'm going to be forced to do is watch it. That's my big fear in life. <laughs> I kind I kind of want someone to donate to Patreon and ask to cover two twenty six just to hear you talking about that fight. Oh, I I will do it, and <laughs> I will. I will go into the biggest details of the technical breakdowns. It's like, Derek Lewis, you can tell he hurt his back because look how stiff it is when he throws the switch kick. <laughs> I think someone the did stare a from I, I think someone did a compilation video where they just cut it down to like the, all the significant strikes and it makes it look like it's this epic brawl. I think I saw a thumbnail for that on YouTube and I, I or maybe it was Twitter. You you can editing is a is a miracle worker. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> Time for us to talk about our core main event, and we are going back down to the flyweight division and to the first ever interim title fight in USC flyweight history. Brandon Moreno, the former champion, he gets the chance to reclaim UFC gold, but to do so, he needs to take on a guy who he beat a few years ago, Kai Carver France. Betting odds for this one, uh, Brandon Moreno is a minus 200 favorite. You can get Kai Carver France at plus 160. This, interestingly, is a reverse from the first fight. Kai Carver France entered that one as a minus 150 favorite. The INC pollsters, they're fairly... It's a fairly close fight between themselves. They're going for 64% for Brandon Moreno to win, 36% for KKF. So... As mentioned before, it's another interim title fight which is taking place. Outside of the sort of financial implications that come with this, obviously fighters who hold the belt get some kind of financial pay-per-view payday. Should there be an interim belt for this fight? Um, no. Because <laughs> uh, I don't think Figueredo is injured, right? I think he just said that he wanted some time off and they just kind of... They kind of pulled what uh, they did with Cyril Gaon and and Derek Lewis. They said, nah, this is interim now. Tough luck, champ. Do you think um, there maybe should be some fixed rules in place when it comes for interim titles? Because I personally have been one of the, the people who's advocated for, say, if you haven't defended your belt for, say, nine, ten months, then an interim gets created. I think it should be... Uh, a, um, Ooh, excuse me, a maximum, almost a minimum, a maximum of a year, I think 12 months, because 12 months is supposed to be when we remove you from the rankings. They, they don't. Um, but I, I think it should be 12 months before, like, oh, you know, if you haven't defended it in 12 months, time to get an interim there. Uh, but the problem is I, I, I think the minimum time uh, shouldn't exist because – they're talking about doing an interim at featherweight now, and Volkanovski just fought. Uh, Ngannou was healthy 
and just asked for more money. But the UFC historically doesn't treat their heavyweight champions very well. So they made an interim title fight. <laughs> like it, it just seems like they're almost abusing this. Because I, I know WME, when they bought the UFC, they know that having title fights on a pay-per-view means more sales. And that led to this influx of more interim title fights. But man, this one is... Uh, uh, I'm not even a Figueredo fan, but I feel like this is very disrespectful to him, in a sense. I believe there's some contractual issues when it comes to Figueredo as well. I think he's been speaking about maybe wanting to try and test waters at bantamweight, so there's maybe that factor in it as well. I I think I read, remember reading somewhere that the that there's been more interim title fights since WME took over than the entire run of Zupa, or Zupa, I should say. That's insane to think, and I 110,000% believe it. Uh, they are interim title crazy. So let's focus on this fight in detail. We're going to be talking about the former champ, Brandon Moreno, first. 19 wins, 6 losses, 2 draws. The most recent of these losses being that fight against Davidson Figueredo at UFC 270. You mentioned earlier on in the show that you thought that Brandon Moreno won that fight. Um, so... Bit of an interesting situation when it comes to Brandon here. In in some people's eyes, he's maybe is uh, the uncrowned king. Uh, I think he's the uncrowned king, a hundred percent. I think he's the number one flyweight on the planet. Again, I'm very biased, and I I want to stress this. I the potential for me being biased is there because my number two favorite moment in fighting history was Brandon Moreno winning the belt uh, as a fellow Mexican, uh, Mexican American me him born and raised there in Mexico. Uh, it was great to see. Um, so I'm willing to admit that, if, you know, but I thought he won. Uh, I thought, uh, well, he, I, I think the, the kind of question was with the scoring was how important is a drop dropping someone, even if it's just momentarily, like if you're losing the round, but you knock someone down for two seconds and that's the big, only real significant thing you've done. Do you just automatically win the round? That was like the big controversy uh, for judging after that fight, I remember. And I, I've always, I feel like I've always maintained, no, I think you still lose the round. Um, like an example of this is uh, the Carlos Condit GSP fight. When Carlos Condit knocked him down, I did still score the round for GSP. The one that sticks in mind for me was uh, Piotr Jan and Jimmy Rivera. Like the first two rounds oh. of that fight, Jimmy Rivera is pacing up Piotr Jan. But Jan gets the two knockdowns right at the end. And it's those two rounds which end up winning him the fight. I think you can make a real argument yeah. for Jimmy Rivera to win that one. I, I like honestly, Jimmy. That was a really close competitive fight, but everyone just wants to talk about like the damage and uh, damage isn't everything, you know. Um, it, it's a you have to you have to judge the whole fight or the whole round as a whole, not just the what's the big moment of the of the round. And if we look at some of the fighters who Brandon Moreno has beaten, obviously we've got the Figueredo win in there, uh, Brandon Royval, Jusia Formiga, Dustin Ortiz, Luis Smolka, and, interestingly, Kai Kawa France at UFC 245. We both watched this fight to research for this show, and I forgot what a good fight this was. It's really good. Uh, if I remember correctly... The only reason it wasn't fight of the night. Yeah, I, I was right. Uh, the only reason, in my opinion, it wasn't fight of the night was because Usman Covington won happened on that same fight, which I even go, ah, it's only slightly not as good as that fight. 
Uh, it's a very, very good technical fight. It, it's amazing. Uh, both guys, though, in very different places to how they were first time around. Because I always, I always love like I'm maybe not as down on rematches as other people are, but I do love them when they take place, say, three or four years after the first fight. And when you have a situation like this, where this was an afterthought match on the fight pass portion of UFC 245, now it's a core main of a pay-per-view. So I, I always love it when you see that sort of, that was then, this is now, and see how both fighters have changed. How do you think Brandon Moreno has changed from that first fight? I think if you look at just how he's fought, his his striking just from the even from the fight before with the Askar Askarov fight where he went to a draw with Askar Askarov. Um when he fought Kaikara France, his striking looked very good. It was mostly a striking affair. Uh and he was kind of battering him and you know bruised him up, even bloodied him if I remember correctly. Uh or at least made his really reddened him up pretty solid. Uh but then it seemed like his he was always known as like a really good grappler. But then his striking just got better and better and better and better. And he Ended up TKOing Brandon Royville, mostly because of the injury, but he looked very good on the feet in that fight. The first Figueredo fight is mostly a striking affair, back when everyone thought Figueredo was just going to knock everybody out with a left hook. And, you know, he took it to a draw. Very close fight. And then the second fight, or, or yeah, in their second fight, he just dominated. It seems like every fight he shows up with something new in his game. Even in the last fight, which was close, I, I will admit, um, against Figueredo. Um, despite him losing, he he showed new wrinkles to his game. He was kicking more, uh, adding more low kicks in. I think he's improved at least, you know, in, in video game terms, he's at least gone up like five or six, maybe even seven levels. It seems like he's improved rapidly almost every fight. Brandon Moreno wasn't able to get the win over Askar Asarov, but Kai Kara France was. That was his most recent performance on the Kurt Split versus Chris Dorcas fight. <clears throat> And there's a lot of people that believe, we sort of mentioned earlier on in the show, about Pantoja maybe being sort of a, an odd man out when it comes to the flyweight division. A big part of that reason is Kaikara France beating Askarov. A lot of people had Askarov down as being maybe like the next flyweight champion. Kaikara France managed to get the job done. Fantastic takedown defense. And it was... It was activity that won him that fight, in my opinion. Because you had a guy who was trying to neutralize him, maybe do a bit of wall and stall, lay and pray. And Kai, being so aggressive, surviving the adversity, he's able to get the win. And a lot of people are riding that wave of momentum and giving him this big opportunity as a result of that. It, that fight's also, like... I, I think one thing, too, is that fight was very entertaining. Um... It, it was definitely the classic striker-grappler matchup. And then the first round, you know, I, if I remember correctly, Kaikara France lost. Or Askar Askarov won it. Second round was KKF all the way. And then the third round, it's still close. You know, tensions are high. There's a lot at stake here. And, you know, Kaikara France just turned it up and let it all out and just went, just went at him. And... It was very exhilarating, very exciting. You could it almost felt like uh, someone wrote it, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, how it worked out. I thought some of the notable wins on Kai's record here. Obviously, Askarov, as we mentioned, uh, Rogerio Bontarin, Howley and Piver, 
Cody Garbrandt, which was at UFC 269. Um, so really, these this sort of three-fight winning streak is the big factor that a lot of people are playing into when it comes to Kaikawa France. And some of the big things that stand out when it comes to those wins, the guy can crack for a flyweight. He has power. Um, for people that haven't seen that Bontarine, uh finish, um, one, it's really awkward, but how hard he puts him out is very frightening for flyweight. Um, if if Herb Dean didn't mess up the the stoppage uh, by stopping it two hours later, uh, twice, <laughs> um, it, it would be the highlight everyone talks about. You know, it it is very shocking how hard he face plants him there. And it's it's probably hot. probably the second hardest hitter in the division, I would say. After Figueroa. Yeah, who hits like a 45er, it seems like. That's not fair. And that's one thing that's really stood out for me, is how much harder the flyweights are hitting these days. Um, and it, it's part of a makeup when it comes to Kaikawa France. Obviously, he's got the power. He trains at City Kickboxing, so obviously Adesanya, Volkanovski. We know that Eugene Berman is a master when it comes to using feints for his fighters. Um, technically, in terms of a stand-up match... He's got all the tools to do it, but we saw what happened in the first fight. Brandon Moreno, largely through his great use of combinations more than anything, was able to neutralize that maybe one-shot big hitter or quitter that Kai was trying to load up on. It was definitely, you know, the one was looking for quantity and then the other was looking for quality in a sense. And uh, the big thing that stood out to me was... Uh, it was, you know, a, like Kaikara France would load up on the right hand, looking to kind of sneak in and over the low left hand of, of Brendan Reno. And then a check hook would just constantly land, beating him to the punch and disrupting movement. And then while he's throwing the left hook, he's able to put the shoulder up. It was a, it was really interesting, you know, especially, you know, like, like you mentioned, Brandon Moreno doesn't have the advantage in the striking in on paper, but that's where he won it in the first fight, which is kind of insane to think about. Do you think maybe Brandon Moreno has become a bit too, bit fallen a bit in love with his striking? Because as mentioned before, like of the 14 wins the guy has had by stoppage, 11 of them come by submission. So that's his bread and butter. That's how he won himself the belt. But we've seen recently in the, in the Figueredo fights, especially, he started to get a lot more confident. And I know a lot of people like to throw that trope, falling in love with your hands. Is he maybe an example of that? I, I think there's an argument there. I don't – I think the argument's there. I don't know if I 100% agree on it, but I can I can definitely see it. And especially in that last fight where I felt like if – because the grappling in the in the first fight, it was very close. The second fight, the striking was a little was a little closer, but the grappling was where Moreno was really shining in the second Figueredo fight. And in the third fight, it was just a stand-up affair, so it was once again close. But while his striking has been the major improvement – you have to kind of remember what got you here in the first place. And I, th and I think that's something he could definitely fall prey to. So this fight's going to be taking place over five rounds, uh, as opposed to the three rounds when they fought first time around. Who do you think is going to have the upper hand when it comes to conditioning? Because one of the things that stood out for me, and this was largely a factor of Kai loading up a lot, was he looked very tired by the end of the third round. So... Is this maybe a sign of things to come when it it does get into the deeper waters? 
that we maybe see Kaikou up front starting well. But as the fight goes on, Moreno, with this five-round experience, having been in championship fights before, is maybe going to take advantage? Uh, I think, and against anyone else, I really wouldn't question Kaikara's France's cardio so much. But against Moreno, I, I have to. Because uh, pressure fighters and high-volume fighters just wear out gas tanks. The guys who never quit, that never stop going forward and are constantly throwing not just one punch, but five, six, seven strike combinations, um, that wears you out, especially if you're, you know, it, you know, Kai Carfrance does load up. He was loading up very hard against Cody Garbrandt. And uh, in a Bontarine, he was doing the same thing. He was very clearly loading up for that big shot. Um, I definitely see, could see if this fight goes into the fourth, fifth round, it just wears out Kai Carfrance, who hasn't, I don't think he's ever been in a five round fight before. Uh, definitely or at least not in gone, gone into the five rounds. I think he may have no. done on one of the um, in some of the regional fights. It, I, I know in the UFC he's never main evented anything. Uh, that sounds awful. Nothing against him. I feel like I worded that correctly. No, no disrespect, man. You're awesome. But uh, uh, at the, I don't. Mm. I I think I would have to question it as well. I, I do think that we we talked about that. I think. Earlier this week, we think we mentioned it, or before the previous show, we, we kind of mentioned a question mark there. And I think it's definitely a possibility again. I think if Kai Kara France is going to win this fight, it's going to have to be in the first two rounds. Because I think that the way that Brandon Moreno strikes, plus you've got the grappling side of the game, which we didn't see in the first fight, but he can always fall back on. I think there's, there's more avenues for Brandon Moreno to win, especially over five rounds. So Kai has got to crack him very early and then even if he does Brandon Moreno has a fantastic chin for this weight class so even if Kai lands the perfect shot it maybe it's not even going to be enough it, he he just takes a beat he's super tough um there you know I, I've been avoiding like bringing it up but Mexican boxers and Mexican fighters have always had this stereotype of being very tough and cardio heavy. He kind of embodies that a lot. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that since it's a stereotype. But the one thing that worries me is he loves to, when it has, even though his boxing has improved tremendously, uh, he loves to have his left hand low, his lead hand low, and his chin up high to kind of bait something in. So where he can do the check hook to counter and then follow up with a combination that is going to get him caught one day. And even if it's not this fight, your chin has a set number of shots it's allowed to take before it just gives out. Unless you max Holloway. Yeah, that dude has another thousand to go. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it in that last fight. Yeah. So, which way are you going with this one then? Who is going to be our new UFC interim flyweight champion? Uh... I think Brandon Moreno is going to have two belts, um, you know, because I, I think he's the undisputed. So I think we're just going to give him an interim for fun, personally. I, I, I definitely, part of me wants to say that he wins, and I'm very confident in it. But in any title fight, I feel like 99% of the time, it's really hard to not give the the challenger a chance or the or the underdog a chance. And Kai Carafrance definitely is worthy of being here. You know, despite the fact that I said Pantoja should be here, I do think that he is worthy of being here as well. And, but that being said, I, I, I do have to lean Moreno. I think it'll be 
a five-round decision. I don't know if he finishes him. I'm going to pick Brandon Moreno as well. I'm going to go 49-46. With that being said, though, and this is no disrespect to Brandon Moreno, who I absolutely adore as a person and as a fighter, I kind of want Kai Kara France to win this just because the idea of Figueredo fighting the same guy four times in a row, it's a a little bit tedious for me. I I definitely understand that. I I think... I think... uh... I think a lot of Twitter, I think, was already complaining about that. I, I, I personally agree with you that they shouldn't have fought a third time, I felt like, you know. Um, but, and then, and then Figueredo didn't want to do an immediate rematch. I do remember that. He said, uh, let, let Moreno fight a couple more people. But, mm, that's that's going to be a tough pill to swallow if Moreno wins again. Uh, but one thing's for sure, the... The previous fight, they're going to look really slow being sandwiched in by two flyweight fights. <laughs> oh, man. I just now realized uh, that might be weird placement. Uh, having a light heavyweight, then flyweights are going to look really quick. And those heavyweights are going to look super slow. Then these guys are going to look like we're watching The Flash or something. Time for us to talk about our main event of the evening. And we're going to the women's bantamweight division. Uh, Juliana Pena is making the first defense of her belt up against the former champion Amanda Nunes. Uh, we'll start with a little bit of a stats dump as we usually do. Betting odds for this one, as you would expect, Nunes is a minus 290 favorite. However, for the first fight, USC 269, that figure was minus 900. You can get Juliana Pena plus 235, plus 650 back in December. This is also reflected when it comes to the INC poll as well. Uh, at the moment, for the second fight, you can get Pena at 34%. Uh, Nunes is at 66 so she is the favourite again. But the first time around, that figure was 94% for Nunes, 6% for Juliana Pena, which makes Pena's victory back in December the biggest poll upset in INC history. That's probably the biggest upset ever. That's at least up there for me. I think when... I started doing the INC polls around sort of 2018 and the most lopsided result we ever had was 96%. And that was like Shevchenko versus Lauren Murphy. So this is the most lopsided non-Shevchenko poll that we had and Pena ended up getting the win. So let's set the stage. UFC 269, December the 11th, 2021. Pena challenges as a massive underdog for this fight. Most people expect Nunes to absolutely bulldoze through her, and the first round pretty much plays the way we expect it to. You could arguably say 10-8 round. What's going through your head when the second round begins? You see Juliana wading in with a big Bart Simpson overhands, and at what point do you realize, oh my god, she's actually winning? Uh, it, it was uh, a lot of denial in our living room. We went, oh, this wine mom boxing is lighting up. Uh, That's okay, though. Is she gassed? Is her mouth wide open? Is she breathing heavy? Oh, no. And it was started just slowly sinking in. And uh, it's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen live. Because at the end of that first round, I thought, all right, here's 13 in a row. That's got to be one of the craziest upsets I've ever seen. I think anyone who watches the channel, follows me online, knows that I'm not a Nunes fan. I'm, I'm quite vocal about that. But even if you put that to one side, it was surreal watching. 
Like, there used to be a time in women's MMA where you could get by with having a limited skill set as long as you were incredibly tough. You were just willing to bite down on the mouthpiece and just keep coming forward. But we thought those days had died out with sort of like the strike force era. And here comes Juliana, this, this dinosaur in terms of her technique, and she ends up getting it done. It, it's, like, it's like Sheila Gaff becoming UFC champion. It's unbelievable. Like on, on, that's 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 a really good cut, a uh, good reference. Uh, it, it there there was there was a lot of names on this twelve fight winning streak that I thought could have beaten Nunez, and that I even picked to beat Nunez. Uh, I picked Misha Tate to beat her at UFC two hundred. Um, I thought Felicia Spencer could have done it, but Juliana Pena. I think if I you know, if I saw that these were the next 13 people she was going to fight after uh, the Kat Zingano fight, I would have said, ah, that well, I think Nunes could win that. I don't see that being a problem. Even then, you know, but and, it, and the legend she built up made it even more incredible. It just, I still can't believe it. I still have to sit here and go, oh, that's right. She's not the champ at 135. We knew a rematch was going to happen. Like, John Arnick says, like, 10 seconds after the fight's over, you can be sure they'll run it back. So I'd probably say the big storyline going into the rematch is Nunes choosing to leave ATT. So for this training camp, she's doing things on her own. I think she's got a couple of the ATT coaches who are helping her out. Um, where do you stand on this one? Like, I, I want to stress, I don't know what's happening behind the scenes at ATT. I don't know what's happening in her personal life. I hope this isn't her blaming the training camp for what happened against Pena. And I say this for two reasons. One, ATT have been a big factor in making Nunes the fighter that she is. Like, I think her record was something like 10 and 4 before she went there. And secondly, ATT didn't lose Nunes that fight. She lost that fight herself. Yeah, it, the, it, it, it almost seems like we, we've mentioned this before, but... Uh, Dan Lambert, ever since he hasn't necessarily been as involved with ATT, uh, you know, been more involved with like AEW, professional wrestling, uh, it, it seems like the ATT quality of the campus kind of diminished a little bit. And that is around that time when he was on there more. And so, you know, definitely could be frustrations. Um, you know, also, I think Kayla Harrison had been there at you know, a couple of times have been training at ATT. And I know that was the big match. They really wanted to set up if she beat Pena. I, I almost feel like it is a blame, but I don't, I don't know Amanda Nunes personally. I don't know anyone at ATT personally. So I don't want to speculate and be like, oh, that has to be it. But it definitely does feel like it. A lot of the focus from the first fight obviously stems from what Nunes did wrong. Let's turn it on, a, on its head, though. What, in your opinion, did Juliana do right? Was there method in her madness? I think her pressure. Um, I, think, I think Nunez did gas. But regardless, I think it, it's, it, you never know what gasses someone. Either was it a bad weight cut, bad cardio, you know, bad training camp, or did the opponent get to you? And... And Pena was putting a lot of pressure on with a ducking jab. She would just duck under jab constantly. And it was landing. I think she landed like 14 in a row. There's that like famous gif of her just getting blasted. Of Nunes just getting 
blasted by that jab. And that definitely wore her out. And then when the fight went to the ground, she's no slouch on the ground. She went into, like, you know, killer instinct, kill mode, and it was over. You know, and she and she was incredibly tough to survive mm. mentally, not just physically, but mentally survive a 10-8 first round, because I also think it was a 10-8. Like, I think that is one thing that cannot be underestimated, is Juliana's mental strength. Like, I know a lot of people see some of the things that she posts on social media, uh, some like the almost delusional comments, but that is her believing no one can stop me. And she mm-hmm. played that out. She was not afraid. And we've seen a lot of fighters who are afraid in that kind of matchup. People freeze up against Nunes. And she said that before that. Like, she beats people before they even step in there. And I agree with that. I thought she had beaten people long before they even signed the contract. You know? And, but uh, Pena, in a sense, and, you know, it's funny. If Pena would have, you know, had the towel thrown in or lost or got finished in that first round hypothetically never made it to the second we'd all it'd be like another joke but the fact that Pena does it I think it draws a favorable comparison to someone you're gonna love and I've been saving this I haven't told you about this but this is what I the comparison I see I see that strike force era Ronda Rousey mentality in her of you know like because people that that her talk kind of had people rolling her eyes you know, but that whole, like, I'm the best, I, you know, and people always said it was delusional back then even for Ronda. I think that's how she hypes herself up. I think that's how she stays in that zone. And that def- it's definitely working for Pena. I-, I think that's definitely it as well for her. I think that's the case. I think there were two things that stood out for me in the fight, which was Pena did a really good job taking away two of Nunez's biggest weapons. Like, if you look at a lot of Nunez's combinations... She always starts with like a low kick, catches fighters off guard, gets them a little bit off balance, and then starts swinging in with the big left hands and right hands. Pena was checking a lot of kicks in that fight, especially in the second round. So she was taking away that starting point for a lot of Nunez's attacks. And because Nunez didn't have that, she was having to go in with the overhands. And like that was that that served two factors. One, it was gassing herself out, like swinging big and missing. And Daniel Cormier, to his credit, he calls her out on it. I think DC does a really good job. He's the first to click on. Oh, there's P- Pena knows what she's doing here. She's gassing her out. He clicks on a lot earlier than Anakin and Rogan do. But the other big thing as well was that when Nunez, especially when she started slowing down, Pena would sort of swing Nunez's left hand over to one side. And as the attack was open, then she followed through with the left. And... The shots of Pena's landing aren't heavy shots, but accumulation of them eventually just starts wearing them down and eventually leads to the finishing sequence. It's death by a thousand cuts, which is still, it still ends in death, you know? And I, I, I always love, I, I prefer, uh, if I'm, I'm not trying to say I should be a coach, but if I was a striking coach, I would emphasize volume because you can't teach power, but you can teach volume. And Penny doesn't have that kind of power like a Nunez does, but she definitely has that volume. And it, you know, like I said, like like we both have said, it just wore her out. And I, you know, that's something you brought up too, was the, the checked low kicks. That's something we've seen. Like you know, I feel like it was two years ago, or maybe it was last year, 
I think maybe where the calf kick was all the rage. You know, that's the unbeatable technique. It's should we even ban it? I've heard Conor McGregor fans even beg the question. <laughs> and conveniently uh, after but, the Dustin Poirier fight. I don't know why it was okay before, but you know, some suddenly it was just too cross the line. <laughs> but we've seen that recently. Like we in the last preview show, we talked about how uh, Jan Blahovich checked a lot of Izzy's kicks, and that really shut him down. And here's another fight where another big upset, funny enough, where the check low kicks were definitely played a factor into it, and. I think that's actually kind of an interesting thing to, to see in MMA, especially at women's bantamweight, which, no disrespect to the division, typically progresses and evolves slower than flyweight or definitely strawweight. What do you think are the big, big adjustments that both fighters need to make going into this rematch? Uh, if I was if I was Pena, I'm going to start with Pena because I think. That's where the big question is. Like mm. for Nunes, the question is the question is here, where or here even, you know. Uh, but for Pena, it's in, you know, like what what does she what does she focus on in the training camp? I almost wonder if Pena is going to look into a wrestling attack, maybe adding uh, another like more more shots or singles or doubles off of a, like a, st- a ducking or head movement combination or head movement shot. Um, I feel like she's going to try and grapple because she she made – she set the plate uh, or set the table, I should say, in the striking with her jab. But she finished it off on the ground. And I wonder where she puts the focus on. Uh, and if I was Pena, I would put focus on – the striking, but I feel like with how she's talking, I think she's thinking grappling. Like some of her wordings, and I broke her on the ground. Like she she kept saying, I broke her on the ground, I, I've seen. And I I think that leads me to believe that she's going to look to grapple again. Yeah. I think from Nunez's perspective, I think the obvious one is to try and counter the jab, where it was, it was concerning to me how she seemed to have no answer to a, t- a technique which is comparatively simple when it comes to combat sport so i think that's obviously going to be closed up uh, i think from a whole perspective i think she needs to sort out her cardio because that coming back to the fore again like newlands has always had cardio issues it was just it was surprising to me that this was still a problem to her six or seven years after katsingano exploited it i think for mm-hmm. Pena, meanwhile i i'm with you i think maybe a, a grappling perspective would be more ideal but there was one grappling exchange in that fight in that first round. We thought, like, Pena had Nunes up against the fence, and you thought, hey, this is our opportunity here. Maybe she could try taking it down. And Nunes was just chucking it around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think maybe it would be risky for Pena to focus exclusively on grappling. What I would maybe like to see, and this is, I'd maybe like to see Pena utilizing a few more clinch techniques, trying to throw some knees. And trying to focus specifically on the body. Because her aim is the same as it was last time. Try and target the cardio. Yeah. And doing it with the jab and a high pressure striking game might not be as effective. Because you expect Nunes to cover up those holes. But maybe clinching more. Maybe throwing some knees, some body shots. 
that's another way to get at her. Make it dirty or like a, like dirty up the fight, you know? What yes. I mean? Yeah, I definitely, you know what? I've never thought about that. That's a fantastic idea. That'd be a great game plan, actually. Make it not the prettiest fight, make it a dirty fight, and you can, that's definitely going to wear cardio out. Randy Couture made a career out of it. And maybe even a body kick, because even if Nunes catches the body kick and Penny goes down to the ground, Nunes saw what happened in the first fight. She's not going to want to grapple because that stops her cardio. It does. But I also weirdly feel like Nunes on top is scarier than standing with her. Oh, she, she's a hell of a good grappler. She is a very good yeah. grappler. I, I just think that power, like she, she just has that, that kind of strength, you know, like, a, but even then, I think that body kick's still a pretty good idea, regardless if, you, if it gets caught or not. Uh, I think anything to make the hands, if you make the hands lower, the jab opens up, the hand raises the hands, that makes the, the hips and sh for shots and a little easier. I definitely like the multi-layered attack idea. So, put your money where your mouth is, Joe. Who's winning this fight and how? Uh, I think Amanda Nunes finishes her, though. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let positive prayers talking about Pena and it's for naught. Uh, I, I, but I, I could see myself being wrong. I, I have that weird feeling that the the controversy, not even controversy, but just the questions of changing camps and moving around. I think that that plays a big factor. And what I don't like about that line of thinking, though, is I feel like did Pena win the first round or did Nunez lose it? And I hate that you know, kind of narrative, but it does make me think. I think there's um, a mental side of it as well, because Nunes has never avenged a career loss. We don't know what she's like in this kind of situation. So I think that's a factor as well. But I think there's too many avenues for Nunes to get this done. I think she's going to be stronger in the grappling. I think she's going to close up a lot of the holes that Pena exploited first time around. So I am going to lean towards her. I'm going to say... I think it's going to be a situation where she does most of the damage in the first round and gets it done in the second. That's kind of my thinking. I don't, I could see her finishing it in the first, but there is something just impressive about Pena surviving that first round in the, uh, in the first fight. So I almost feel like, Hmm, maybe, maybe Amanda holds off. Maybe she goes in a little bit more calculated. And if she does, look for a finish. It's going to be a little bit more precise. She isn't just going to throw the kitchen sink at her. But I, I think as much as I, I kind of want Pena to win because I think it makes the division interesting. Yeah. But I think, I think Nunez is probably taking it. I, I, outside of my own personal biases, I actually think it would be better for the weight class for Pena to win as well. Mm. And I, I'll try and explain why. I might go on a bit of a monologue about this, but I, I do apologize. But I still think the end goal for Nunez is the Kayla Harrison fight. And, and, and for the UFC as well. Like, for somebody who's not part of the promotion, Kayla gets a truckload of coverage. Like, she's featured a lot on uh, a lot of the adverts. Obviously, ESPN plays a part in that. She was in attendance at 269. And it's always been my belief, if Nunez had won that fight in December, they were going to basically sign off and get in Kayla Harrison. Obviously, if Nunez wins this fight... Uh, stocks back up Kayla, Kayla comes back on the table and they probably do that fight around sort of June, July time and if that fight does happen Bantamweight sort of ends up in the same place it was say back in 2020 where the division's basically mothballed to do this 
this fight, which, yes, it's a big fight, don't get me wrong, but I think the long-term impact of the fight isn't really going to be as massive because there's no featherweight division. Like, regardless yeah. of who wins, nothing comes from it. So if you're someone like Ketlin Vieira, for example, who, in my opinion, should be fighting the winner of this fight, you're going to have to wait a year, year and a half before you get your title shot. And I just don't think that's fair. Uh, that's at least my opinion. I It definitely does feel like that. And I I don't know how I feel about the Kayla Harrison thing jumping up or, not, or jumping to the UFC just instantly, you know, uh, getting a title shot. I mean, 145 doesn't have a division, but she's also we're also risking Kayla Harrison having to cut 10 pounds. So we don't know how that we could could affect her. Because Kayla I, Harrison's I think, a very big girl. Like she's, you know, just very stout. I and, know Ka- I know Kayla fought at 145 for the Invicta fight and she seemed mm. fairly comfortable there. Okay. Well, that's I thought it was at 155 in Invicta. That doesn't make sense. I don't think I've ever seen. Like I said I don't remember 155 in Invicta, but yeah, uh, I even then though, like this division kind of would end up stagnating, and it's the last thing that we need. Because, like I've said this before, I think like regardless of what you think of Juliana, regardless of what you think of Nunes, the division needed that sort of wow moment to make people pay attention again, and Juliana gave us that. Yeah, I only cared about this division. Before the Pena upset, because I liked seeing Amanda Nunes finish people. And like, I wanted to see, okay, who's she going to fight next? And that was it. Uh, this division wasn't doing well for me. It was uh, kind of on the downturn for me. And then this happened. And, you know, it, it gave you an injury. It was so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reminding me of that. I still walk with a limp. Oh, that's, that's insane. The the UFC's big dog gave you a limp or losing <laughs> a limp, yeah. Uh, that's I I ever since you called her uh, the the Roman Reigns, I, that's how I picture it. And but yeah, I, I do think I, I kind of worry for the division if if Nunez wins. And I like Nunez. I, I don't even I don't dislike her. I'm not a, a you know well, I'm not even a, I'm not a Pena fan, but I I do I was impressed with her and it, it is admirable like uh the story is just fantastic and but i do like nunez and but i almost don't want her to win if that makes sense and on that cheery note we'll put a bow over this um recipe as it were um so ufc 277 as mentioned before prelims not the best a couple of standout fights a couple of interesting fights it's it's a much better card individual for in terms of individual fights than the overall package, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I personally think this main card uh, has the potential to stack up against any card this year. Um, I really like this main card. Uh, I'm never too hot to see a heavyweight fight, admittingly, on my main card, but at least it's Derek Lewis, who's always entertaining. Uh, but two flyweight fights on a main card, I it's, it's wonderful. So I do like this card a whole lot, personally. Yeah, this... Preview show, you know, it has run very, very long. I'm looking here. We've talked about nearly, we talked 100 minutes on a Nunes headline pay-per-view. So we've done something truly amazing here. Clearly we're doing something right. Or, you know, we, we truly have just the best chemistry on the planet uh, in the MMA world. Yeah. We're the new Smash Brothers. 
um i want to say a big thank you to everybody who has been tuning in for this long-winded show here um i want to say that it has been an absolute pleasure to be talking about these fights that's the main reason i do this preview show because i love the idea of talking about mma fights and obviously we've got joe here to do it with us uh once again joe if there's anybody who wants to follow you on social media where's the best place to go uh, I'm mostly on Twitter at LocoJoe7 uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm usually posting uh, about fights or random complaints I have. So, but it's a fun, it's a fun time. It's fun complaints. And one final thing before we wrap this up, um, we, you always do a retro review on the main channel every month, and they always have some sort of connection when it comes to the upcoming pay-per-view. So, women's bantamweight title fight. What are we covering? Uh, in my opinion, probably the most important fight in the division, and that's uh, Ronda Rousey starting Ronda Mania and running wild uh, in Strike Force against Misha Tate. Our first ever uh, Strike Force card, which was it was a great experience to relive that one. I have to say, it was super cool. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it in case anyone doesn't know the card uh, off full memory, but there was a fight I remembered being awesome, and when I rewatched it, it was just as good as I remembered it being. Uh, but that, that main event, uh, I, you know, looking back at that main event, getting to do it, like the retro reviews are always great. Cause I see a lot of things I'd never think about on a regular basis, but just thinking about that main event and the significance of it was insane to me. And on that cheery note, we will wrap things up, um, because we've all got lives that we need to uh, get back to. I need to get this uploaded in like four hours or so to meet our deadline. So thank you very much for joining us, Joe. Uh, and we'll hope to have you again for UFC 278. A big one for us over in Blighty. Leon Edwards becomes only the fourth man in UFC history to challenge for a UFC title. Fourth Britain, I should say. I, I really hope he wins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling so hard for him. But I, I need to do a little bit more research, I think, before I make that call. So thank you very much for joining us, Joe. Uh, my name has been Carl Bainbridge. This has been the UFC 277 preview show. We hope to join you again for UFC 278. For now, though, bye-bye for now.